Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. This is Jen Taylor, and today I'm here with Belinda Zilberman. Did I get it right? You got it right. Woo! All right. <laughs> um, and I like your first name, Belinda, because I'm a Jennifer, and Belinda's not a Jennifer. So I like it. <laughs> I can pronounce it, and it's not weird, but it's not the most common name. <laughs> it is not. It is not. I really like it. Uh, you have a website, and your website's Pikea? Yes. Me- mediation. Mm-hmm. So jump in, and we'll have the link, so don't worry about spelling my phonetic pronunciation. Um, we'll have the links to that. But tell me about what you do. So uh, I call myself a transformative mediator and a relationship coach. <clears throat> and what that means is, you know, the practice of mediation, which has got elements of the mental, emotional, um, intellectual uh, side to it where we're trying to help people navigate conflict um but the transformative part means that it's a way of approaching conflict and how we experience conflict and challenges in our lives that when we start to use it for um for our highest selves when we start to use it to develop in our relationships to understand where we come from where we're going what we want how we want to feel Um, Our conflicts actually can be a tool. Um, They can actually be that path towards towards the life that we really aspire to have. So I work with couples who are in conflict. Often they're on the verge of divorce. I, you know, sometimes I'm lucky enough to get them when they're like a few years from divorce. So they're in a really different head state of like trying to stay together and see if they can work through the conflicts. And I've been doing this for eight years now in Portland, Oregon. Oh, I was going to ask you where you were because I wasn't sure. They're in Portland. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So tell me about your, your background is impressive. So I'm kind of bragging about you right now. (laughs) Anytime, anytime. (laughs) Tell me about your degrees. Because you said to transformative mediator, I know I can get certified as a mediator or a cost. I mean, there's some court terms that where you can, I can get certification mm-hmm. and even as a, um, a coach, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily need a lot of certification, but you are pretty impressive. Your little resume. So tell me. Well, and that's funny because <clears throat> I, I think that a part of my sort of my awakening, my growing up, my becoming into an adult and maturing was recognizing sort of the difference between going and getting a lot of degrees and trusting inner wisdom. So I say this all with a caveat to say, you know, it is death. I do not feel better or smarter than the average person for having gotten so many of those degrees. So um, it was a lot of, you know, proving worth, I think, early on. So I have an undergraduate in communications and anthropology. And then I went on to get a law degree, uh, practice law briefly. Uh, I was trained to do large group and small group facilitation and coaching. Um, 
one-on-one coaching. And then I got a degree in spiritual psychology, a master's, um, which was actually in my 40s that I got that degree. And what I do now today is really combine all of those, all of that experience uh, in my work. I just think it's, you're right. It doesn't necessarily make one person smarter than the other. I have no degree. <laughs> and I, I understand that. But when you've put in the time and the dedication to achieve it, I still think we need to give kudos. <laughs> well, so you, you help people facilitate not getting divorced. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm always um, averse to actually saying that because I think that for some people, divorce is perfect and it's meant to be. I support people in getting clear about that choice. My goal is that when a couple comes and sees me, that by the end of their time with me, they're either, com- they're starting from scratch. They like, they have learned what they needed to learn, they've gotten clarity, they've done a lot of repair and healing work with each other, and they re-choose each other from this new place. Or they've done all of that work, and the couple gets really clear individually, each person in the couple, that it's time to move on because they're on different paths. But, but oftentimes what ends up happening when you listen to people tell their stories of divorce is one person had their foot out the door for half or much of the marriage and the other person's trying to pull the person back in. And when people divorce in that way, one of them feels ultimately like they didn't have a choice and they were victimized by that process. And the other one, you know, may live years or decades with guilt of having to impose that decision on the other person. So I really want people to be able to come together and choose together what's going to feel like the most correct decision. And of course, that doesn't mean that everyone's always like, yes, this is, you know, I'm so thrilled I'm getting a divorce, but there is a clarity that can be gained by going through the process I take people through um, that can do a lot of the healing and a lot of the completion work before the two people ever separate. I love it because I'm, I'm divorced. I've been divorced. And that story of mine is probably a little similar to yours. And I didn't want, I didn't get married to get divorced. So I didn't want to, but I also felt like I'm, I have, I don't have any more tools left. I can't stay the way it is. I don't want to leave, but I don't have the tools. And I went to therapy, um, both times. And I, thought, well, at least we can end, it would have, you would have been the perfect facilitator because what I wanted to do is move through it in a transition where we can move through it in a healthy way. And I think that was accomplished to the most, for the most part, one of those times. And the other part, it didn't, I would have, it would have never mattered what anyone said or how much therapy we went because he didn't want it. And so end of, but he didn't want it to change either. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, when I'm in a, a lovely relationship that I love and we went to therapy when we were having a really hard time and I said, look, at the very least, what therapy will do is help ease the transition. We have kids and I feel like a total failure and it did the opposite. Mm. The opposite. We did that thing where we were like, oh, oh my God, I really like you. Oh, <laughs> I love and, it. Yeah. So I, I can understand it from several different perspectives. I think that what you're doing, it's just that there are other options, I guess. And I, you had written that to me 
that it's not divorce or not divorce. There, there could be other choices in there mm-hmm. doing it more gracefully. So take me back, take me back in your life. How far back do you want to go? <laughs> well, well, see, because we pregame for a couple minutes, that's right on. Like, well, the year of Jesus's birth would probably, <laughs> assuming that we believe it was his birth. Right. So, I mean, I, I love how you put it when we were chatting earlier. So, at wherever you want, but I, I feel like you'll do it justice. Yeah, taking you back. Well, this is the Naked Podcast, isn't it? So, um, you know, getting really real. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to tie in at all who I am today as a person and the work that I do to my family of origin story and and where I come from, um, I think that it's, it's one of the things, having written a book recently, that I start sharing from the very beginning, which feels incredibly relevant, um, which is, of course, the relationship that my parents had, um, you know, sometime before I came to being, um, and where they come from. Um, so, you know, it, we, we talked as we were getting on the call that, you know, this could be an six hour conversation or a whole series. Um, but the long and short of it is that my, my father, um, was a Holocaust survivor. He passed away in 1991 and he came to the U S, um, as a teenager, uh, and, um, and met my mom when he was somewhat older. There was a 15-year age difference between them, which is pretty unique, I think, um, which in and of itself would cause challenges in any relationship, even the best relationship. But uh, they were both, you know, how I would describe them is they were both escaping their, their upbringings. They were both fleeing. My dad never stopped fleeing. Um, fleeing the Nazis, fleeing the history of what he had lived, uh, being born in Paris, France, and, and living there through the entirety of the Holocaust. Uh, and my mom, having been born the youngest of four children, the only girl in an, an extremely strict Catholic house in Belgium, actually, where, <clears throat> you know, in Europe, I think religions still to this day can be a bit more... Um, traditional and traditional ways of, of thinking about religion and in many ways much more restrictive in terms of uh, upbringing and, and how one is allowed to live, let's say, and how you know the personality and the unique characteristics of a person are allowed to shine. So I think um, this is really where the story begins. And I can remember hearing at some point um, after my, many years after my dad had died, having a conversation with my mom once about getting pregnant with me. It was not anticipated. Like, I mean, and back in the day, I mean, this was 1969 when I was conceived in 68, you know, born in 1969. I mean, at that time, if you were married, like you were going to have kids. And I think people weren't really taking precautions because it was like, when it comes, it comes. And oftentimes, the baby came pretty quickly when, you know, if they were having any sex. So I think when we talked about how I was conceived and, um, you know, this kind of like, 
feeling somewhat guilty about a mom saying to her child, like you, we, we were so happy that you were coming, but you weren't planned. Um, and then learning that my mom was incredibly depressed um, when she was pregnant with me. And maybe if we had the lens to see it through um, the lens that we have now, maybe it was postpartum, maybe it was, you know, all kinds of, you know, the symptoms of, of having a child, of being pregnant. Um, but I definitely feel like I came into a household where there were two people who didn't know who they were. They didn't, couldn't articulate what they wanted. And the marriage itself um, was often blamed, like as if it were a third entity, right? The marriage is the problem kind of thing. And as, as a very, very young child, um, I, I never didn't know the word mediator, but I felt it in my bones that even as a little girl, it felt my responsibility, like my responsibility to um, somehow create peace and, and love um, and connection in my household. I can't imagine. I, well, I mean, I can imagine some of the Catholicism just because <clears throat> You and I both grew up in New England, where I was, um, everyone was Catholic except my family, I think. And so, and it was very strict, not like you're explaining about Belgium. I understand there's a differentiation there, but we, we definitely had uh, very strict Catholic schools where you went to school. So I get what your mother was going through to some degree. And I can't imagine what your dad was going through. Mm. So you had... One younger sister. Yes. What was the age difference? 14 months. Oh. Yeah. That was pretty. And <laughs> I, I know you have a lot of hindsight now, which is great. I, that helps put the pieces together. Mm. Your mom had depression when she was pregnant with you and after. Did that go all the way through your sister's pregnancy and after? You know, I think so. I mean, she was not um, diagnosed at the time. I mean, again, remember early 1970s, people were not going to therapy at the time. I think she was depressed because I think as soon as she got pregnant with me, and literally I was three months old and she was getting pregnant with my sister, um, I think she realized for herself that her options were suddenly diminishing and she was already struggling in this relationship, having, you know, the idea of escaping your childhood or escaping your country or to, and then choosing to marry someone for that to that end. That's not love. Right. That's not that's not an exciting future we're envisioning. And I think both of my parents, like many people, sort of had convinced themselves that the answer to their happiness, the answer to their joy, the answer to their future was in marrying each other. And I think, you know, getting pregnant, while there may have been physiological changes that were going on, it was really more the emotional and like the physical world reality of, oh my gosh, I'm a mom now. I'm forever connected to this man. I'm forever responsible for this little being and feeling completely incapacitated to live that life. And I really think that that's, that's where her uh, depression, you know, she had headaches her whole life. She passed away uh, five years ago. Her whole life had headaches. Her whole life had stomach aches, um, was a smoker, except for when she was pregnant with me, a smoker her whole life. Um, 
So it was something that I think she could hide well, but I don't think that she ever quite escaped this feeling of, you know, her life should have been quite different. I don't think that that's uncommon in our generation. Like, it, wait a minute, it wasn't what we were expecting it to be. Um, or even getting pregnant now unexpectedly and early. I mean, we know when you have kids, I tell my kids, don't have kids until you think you really want them. And even then, you're going to be surprised because it's so much more difficult than we realize. I, I think we have this um, happy image of it, and that's not the full reality. And although I never stopped doing most things or lost my identity with my kids or anything like that, but it sure changed a lot. Life For sure. dramatically. And in that generation, like you said, having kids in 1969 and 1970, yeah, that was, you were pretty much done at that you point. Were, well, and remember too that um, she hadn't finished college. Uh, she was in college when she met my dad. She, you know, decided to leave. Uh, already, you know, becoming a career woman was still more of the exception than the norm. I mean, I don't remember many of my friends' moms working out of the house. Um, she had left her country, right, to come to the U.S. with my dad. She had left her family. Um, but again, like you said, I don't think her story was atypical. I think many, many of us choose to get married, think we're consciously choosing, right, but choose to get married, choose to have kids mindfully, intentionally, awake or not, um, from a place of this is going to make me happy, right? Or this is the solution. So, so I think her, I think her story, I think my parents' story, um, and having reflected so much on it, um, and considered it and looked at it from so many different angles throughout my life has, and then living my own story in relationship and parenting and co-parenting and step-parenting and as, as I've done has really helped me, I think, to have a, a deeper understanding of how we make these choices and how often we haven't gotten real clarity on our intentions and our motivations. Oh my gosh. Did you, I have a question for you. Did you look at your parents' relationship? It has nothing to do with how much you love your parents, but think, I want to do this so much better. Oh my gosh. Of I, mean, course. I think I was like six or seven years old. Yeah. My mom would leave, right? That oh, was like, okay. yeah, I was little. I was, it was not, it was not fun to live at my house. And then as a teenager, my mom actually told, and I share this in the book, that my mom turned from our, our Subaru station wagon. She was driving and turned to the back where I was sitting. My sister was sitting in the passenger seat to say, I'm leaving your dad. And I remember it kind of shockingly being so angry. Um, I, was, I had just turned 17. And my first thought was like, what the fuck took you so long? And now, like now, and interestingly enough, my, my dad already, um, he didn't know at the time that he had uh, cancer, but I'm quite certain that I already felt it because I remember in my bones again, thinking I'm going to fucking have to be responsible for my dad because my mom had carried him, right? He had his own kind of depression his entire life too. And so, um, I think I, uh, 
gosh, I mean, it, it, it just speaks to so much of, of how I would then choose in my, my adult life. The problem is when you ask, you know, watching my parents and thinking, yes, I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do it different. For sure. I had all those thoughts many, many, many times. But I remember um, uh, a therapist that I worked with at some point in my 20s who had said to me, you know, if you are parenting or you're choosing in response to your parents, you're not really freely choosing. So one of the things I will ask and, and, you know, invite people to consider is if you're like, I'm going to do it like them or I'm going to do it not like them, we're still kind of in this dance with judging for better or for worse what our parents did, what they didn't do. We're not really quite free. And I think the idea of becoming a, a healthy, individuated adult in healthy partnership and healthy relationship is to be able to go back and sit and reflect and really understand how your parents made the choices that they made and then be able to separate yourself and say, okay, let me really consider that. Right. And let me, and sit with it. So to then be able to make a choice, that's really not like I'm going to do it like them or not like them, but how do I want to do it? And really feel that difference. Does that make sense? Yes. And I felt that way after my first daughter was born when she was about seven months old at Christmas time. I remember thinking, I can choose any way I want this to look. It doesn't need to look like they like it did before. It, I mean, I have total control over this. Mm-hmm. And that was empowering. And I was 21. But, but then thinking, so how do I want it to look? What do I want? And, and that's, it's hard when you're young and you're navigating your own baggage, the person that you're with or that you're choosing and they're, you know, it's a lot. And to figure out how you want it when you don't really have a whole lot of life experience mm-hmm. to make those determinations, unfortunately. I always tell my kids, don't pick a degree when you go to college. Pick the classes that you think will be really fun for the first two years. And take things that you've never taken before and anything that interests you. And then after two years of taking classes that you can apply towards a degree, look at what you really loved and go to the counselor and say, I really loved these. What degree supports these things that I liked and where will that take me? That's how you find out what you want to do. We do it backwards. Well, and I, I'm so sorry. No, go, go. Oh, sorry. No, I I absolutely love what you're saying. And, you know, the the book that I I mentioned that I wrote goes through a number of steps. And one of the steps talks about curiosity. And I think that is, that is probably the thing that has hurt us most as adults was we're, we're so programmed and conditioned by our families, by our religions, by our schools, our teachers, to think that there is a certain way to live or a certain way to think. No, no better place are we conditioned than as parents and as spouses, right? Like we, there definitely is, you know, you start hearing people on the fringes of how they want to reorganize their family, reorganize their relationship. You know, uh, who was it? Um, a famous actress who lived next door to her husband. Is it um, Kate uh, Hudson and, and Kurt Russell? Um, I can't remember her, her first name, but like, I remember when they were like, Goldie Hawn, Goldie Hawn. Yeah. Oh, Goldie okay. Hawn and Kurt Russell. They like, I, I believe it was them who were living in two houses next to each other. And they've got an amazing, like 30 plus year relationship. Um, but we, yeah, we, we are so afraid to go against all of these things that we know because we think that they're the right things because, you know, or 
it, even if our parents told us, you know, it has to be this way, but then we start doing it differently, then we think, well, the different way must be the right way as opposed to let me get curious. Like yeah. there's so many different ways people live on the planet. There's so many different things people believe. There's so many practices. I mean, you of all people, mom of 18, right? You have parented in every possible way. And I, I'm quite certain if we spent an hour listening to your stories of parenting that your listeners have been hearing probably over the time you've been doing your podcast, you've had to learn all kinds of ways. Uh, you couldn't parent 18 kids in the same way. No. You got challenged in different ways by different kids based on who they were, by, based on their gender, based on their intellect, based on the, were they introverts, extroverts. I mean, all of these different aspects. So you had to show up in curiosity to successfully do that, whether you realized you were doing that or not. Right? But I have that mindset that, you, that it, we, there's no box. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fit into this box. There is no box, but yes, but to be curious. Yeah. And I think we just don't take it. Maybe we don't learn those lessons as early as would be the most beneficial. You know, it takes some time to learn this, to be curious. That's a great way to put it. Yes. Be curious. Don't, don't say, I want to be an attorney the rest of my life. Take the classes that you like and then find out that those classes, one of the degrees is that you could be an attorney. And what does that look like? Mm -hmm. We do things so backwards, I feel like. Well, but here's why. Here's why. We're naturally curious when we're born. Mm -hmm. Like, we are curious beings. The, the challenge is, is that that curiosity kind of gets sucked out of us because our parents' curiosity got sucked out of them and so on and so forth. So it's not that we have to learn how to be curious. It's we have to remember that that's actually who we are. But we were told that we need to have the answers. We need to be right. We need to be in control. We've got it right. Why are parents so afraid of their kids just going to college and taking classes they love? Because it's like, well, how will they make money? And what will they do? And when will college ends? And it's like you start freaking out about this stuff and saying, wait a minute, like, Yes, there's a way to get those basic needs met and be curious. Where is that conversation happening? I don't know. And you, you found out your parents were getting divorced and you were really close to graduating at that point. Yeah. You had to have been. And because I know you went to college and your mom at some point went to Belgium. So yes. catch us up to what happened. So my parents, they separated in, in uh, 1986. In 1987, I graduated and headed out to college. Uh, and in 91 um, is when my father passed away. And that same year, just four months before he passed away, is when my mom returned to Belgium. Uh, okay. She had actually, her mom was actually dying. And unfortunately, she never got to be uh, rejoined with her mom before her passing. So she did make it back there. And and lived out the rest of her years in Belgium. Um, but those were, uh, those were probably the most challenging, frankly, aside from middle school, uh, which I think most people say are the most challenging. I've got two middle schoolers right now. Um, but but that, that period of time when I think how it affected me, I mean, in so many different ways, right? At 17, I'm just trying to figure out who I am. My parents are separating, and in many ways, they're trying to figure out who they are in the context of a, of a separation. Uh, they actually never got divorced because my dad's passing, and my mom didn't want to push that process on him, um, so they just lived separately until he passed away uh, five years later. 
Um, but it was, it was a time, yeah, to really ask a lot of questions. And in many ways, maybe my fate was sealed at that point about what I would do in my life because I, it, it, it was their journey of separating, but my experience having been the family mediator, right? Self-proclaimed, of course. My sister would probably be like, you are not, you are causing a lot of the conflict, lady. Like, you were a big part of the problem. Um, but, you know, I, I had to have answers. Like, I remembered thinking, like, their separation, even though I, I knew that it was for the best, that they were a couple that, that really should have separated much before then, um, uh, I, I had to understand how we had all gotten there, right? And and wh- what it meant for me because it was like that day that I was that I heard my mom was leaving my dad. It wasn't just like, oh my gosh, what took you so long? It was also like, so what's the truth of what I've just lived the last seventeen years? Were you happy, but kind of not happy? Were you really miserable but hiding it? It was almost like. Everything that I knew up until then, I, I didn't, I couldn't understand. And really that's what, what took me through college, through graduate school, through law school, being in this question of, I, I need to understand because A, I don't want to live that same life that they lived, but also because I, because I needed to understand for myself what I had lived and it just wasn't clear at that point. Um, and I knew that this process of reflection at the time and asking questions and not being satisfied until I had some answers for myself was going to to be part of what I'd be spending a lot of my life doing from then on. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so you, um, you finished college, you went to graduate school, you got your law degree, and um, you're in New York City. I was, yes. And you worked for a law firm. You said you didn't do that for very long. Was that not your cup of tea, I'm guessing? No. When I was in law school, I already knew um, I wouldn't practice traditional law. I was really interested in international and human rights law. And because my mom was already in Europe and my sister was uh, actually had just relocated also once she finished graduate school. I was thinking about working with the European Union and doing something from an international law perspective there. Um, So uh, the interesting thing is that I was in a a school where probably 95% of the people graduating went on to have a very traditional kind of law career. So I was uh, once again sort of feeling like the misfit and I was just going to have to figure it out myself. Uh, and you know, that's where the, the, the interesting turn of events happens for me where it's January of gosh, what year would have been now? It was just before I was graduating. So January of 1996, where, um, I was visiting my mom and I remembered saying to her boldly, I'm ready to meet the one and thinking I've had this clarity. I I wasn't quite sure where my career was going to take me, but it was like, I've got this education. I've got the tools. I've got the skills. I announced to her, I'm ready to meet the one. And I meet my first husband within like a week or two. And of course, you know, if anyone who, who, reads even just the first couple of chapters of my book, you'll soon find out that, you know, the truth about that was I was terrified about going into the world. I was terrified about how I was going to figure out 
how to pay for my life. Uh, I had had a lot of support from my family up until that point. Um, what I was going to do with my life, where I was supposed to live, like what my purpose on the planet was and all of this. And so this calling in the one, and we hear that a lot, you know, uh, there's a couple of, of coaches out there, who've, you know, who've coined that term calling in the one. For me, this was, you know, not really calling in the one. This was let me have someone to kind of sink my teeth into so that I don't have to go figure out all of this stuff. Because if I can be in a relationship with someone and make it work, then maybe I don't have to, I can avoid doing all this other stuff. Of course, I didn't know that then. <laughs> we don't think it through subconsciously, do we? No, the, the irony is that I, I thought I had really thought it through. I mean, I really thought I had my shit together. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it would take... Um, it would take that marriage and not just that marriage, but a second marriage to realize that as, as thoughtful as I had been about who I was and what my purpose was and what I wanted to do on the planet, there was a, there were a lot of, um, unresolved issues and childhood traumas and, uh, mm. patterns that I, that I was, had been unwilling to look at and resolve within myself. And so it was much easier because I was good at relationship. Like I could figure it relationship out. Um, what I couldn't figure out was myself, my relationship with myself and my truth and my curiosity. Do you think that though, you were good at relationship and not with yourself. Do you think that if you had been good with yourself, that relationship wouldn't have happened anyway? For sure. Right. For sure. I mean, so <laughs> despite how good we are, I'm good at relationship too, man. I am. <laughs> I kill it. I can kick ass and take names at relationship. That doesn't mean that it's healthy or it's a good idea or I'm honoring myself or I'm, and no, I wouldn't have wanted that situation nor probably that person had I been more clear with myself but boy we think we have it all figured out don't we well and the fun thing to discover you know decades later now is that we choose people or how I perceive it now really how I work with people is from this context that we choose the perfect person at any given time in our life to do our work, our internal work with, meaning that person is going to trigger all of the places within you that you haven't yet looked at or that oh you're not God. resolved. Thinking about it that way makes me crazy. I'm, I'm going to have to, <laughs> now I'm going to have to go back and be like, what are you working on there? But it's probably like, I could, I was like, oh, I was working on that. Oh, I was working as you were saying it. Yeah. Yeah. How crazy. And so you've, you got married and divorced and married and divorced, but your second husband, you talk about differently because I have like, I have your information that I'm reading. Plus I, I like to stalk people as much. <laughs> it's really sexy. Um, sounds creepy. It's really sexy. But So, I mean, but, and you were kind of, I think we are working on ourselves. We might not realize it, which is such a shame because we could get so much further ahead. And I know I could have been so much kinder in the leaving process. And that doesn't mean I was yelling and screaming and it was just like, more gentle in the leaving process if I had realized how much I was working on myself and didn't know yeah. because you're really talking about like you were you were really working on yourself but maybe didn't realize it while you were going through all that is that a good assertion oh for sure I mean okay. I, 
I mean, I started doing personal development work in my early 20s. Uh, I, I never, and I've never stopped, and I just turned 50 this year. So, but it was a very different kind of thing, I think, in my 20s and my 30s than in my 40s. In my 20s and 30s, it was, I'm broken, I'm overweight, I, or I'm always, you know, struggling with my weight, I'm, um, I'm angry, I'm judgmental, I'm not good enough, I'm, you know, it was a lot of self-judgment and the work, quote unquote, that I was doing on myself was to just feel okay in the world and just feel okay in my marriages or just feel okay with friends and family and all of this. In my 40s, it got deeper. Like even though I asked questions in my 20s and 30s about my purpose on the planet, what I was here to do, how I was here to contribute, in my 40s, that's really when I started feeling like feeling into those questions and that inquiry. And it was no longer about can I just feel okay with myself? It went beyond that conversation. It went to, you know, how have all of the experiences in my life contributed to who I am today? How do I find a way through all of that judgment of myself and others to embrace all of the conflict, all of the change, all of the transition, to love them and me and still choose? I mean, that choose to be married to a certain person, but I can still love them. I can appreciate them for who they are. And I can finally, I think in my 40s, could, could start to understand that when I, when I started to make things less personal, a little less personal and see with a little more objectivity through this lens of, you know, one of the things I love to say is our, our most difficult relationships are our greatest teachers. When I started thinking about it that way, it went back to that question in, in my, my teens of why is this happening? I need to understand why, right? If you remember back in the, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, you know, why bad things happen to good people was one of these books that was out back then. And I just was fascinated by, by that author whose name I can't remember in that way of thinking of like, I wanted to understand. So, you know, part of why we live in so much um, tortured experience and why we suffer so much on the planet is because we want to find some order to things and we automatically put things in categories, bad relationship, good relationship, bad experience, good experience. And we constantly are putting things in in different columns, which makes us a little schizophrenic. Like if things are going great, we're great. And if they're bad, we're bad and they're bad and et cetera. And I, I knew that that was not going to get myself at least to a peaceful place because I had been judging literally for 40 years, judging other people. Yeah. You're judging yourself even more. Right. I mean, I think most of us recognize that, that we are, we are um, most judgmental often of ourselves. And I, I had just lived that enough and thought, you know what? I don't know how much more life I've got on the planet. I'd like to have some different experiences. So can we move off this one a little bit and start trying it to have another one? And so that was quite different. I think sometimes I'm like, what am I supposed to learn that I'm not learning? Because if I could just learn this thing, then I could get past this one, like get to the next level of the game. You right. know? <laughs> totally. I, I, and I, I, but I do think that I've always felt that my experiences, I'm there to learn and to teach. And I don't know at what level or percentage either one of those is at, but everything that I've experienced, positive or negative, well, what am I learning and what, how can I use this to teach or as part of my experience? Um, but 
it's hard to be introspective when things are tough or to do it all the time. For sure. So you got divorced a second time and you talk about him that like you had no doubt he was your soulmate. Mm. Did you still feel like that or? When I was getting divorced? Yeah. I mean, you were 39 and you were facing the end of that second marriage and things shift so much when you divorce. I mean, instantly it's like flipping a switch. I still felt like he was my soulmate, but, but I guess here's the difference at that point in my life and years after what I started to embrace was this idea that we have many soulmates Okay. Um, right. We have a tribe of people. We, we are on the planet from a spiritual perspective. And frankly, I've even expanded that to say we can be in relationship with anyone, anyone. It's just, it's, it's because part of what we're, what we're, we've been misguided to believe is that the relationship exists outside of us versus my, how I relate to you. I mean, you and I have just met, look at the kind of relationship we're creating. You didn't know me. I didn't know you, but the experience we're each having right now can be seen through the eyes of what you're choosing to experience and what I'm choosing to experience. Not because you're a certain kind of person or I'm a certain kind of person. We don't know each other well enough to be able to say that. So it's like the example of being in relationship with someone who you're standing next to waiting for a bus stop. If you're in an amazing mood, and you're happy, and love is just flowing, guess what you do? You turn to that person. You make a joke with that person. You laugh. You, you create connection in that second. So I think I absolutely believe that he, he I mean, I believe all the relationships up until now in my life have served me. There's no question. And in that way, they're all my soulmates, my parents, my sister, my friends, my boyfriends, ex-boyfriend, you know, everyone has been a soulmate in that way. There was definitely something special and unique about him, and I had some some experiences during the marriage as well as after that one could say went into the spiritual realm, past life regression, um, you know, for people who are interested in that kind of exploration that confirmed that we had actually had a, maybe you might call it a soul contract, or we had lived other lifetimes together so there were aspects about that that made this feel like a more profoundly significant relationship um, from that level. But, but really, I think why I speak about him perhaps differently than any other relationship I had had up until that point was that I, I, I consciously and intentionally learned and grew maybe the most in that relationship. And in that way, it was the most beautiful and the most difficult relationship of my life. And to me, that's how I'm, I would call at this point, him, my soulmate. Wow. That's a really incredible way to look at it. I love our, our talks. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. That's because you wrote that. And I was like, that's interesting. The man you divorced and you're, re, you're remarried. Wow. That's a great way to look at That makes me, um, again, it's interesting when people say something that shifts. So you've said two things to me that shifted my perception. One is that every relationship is a soulmate on some level. And I, wow. So that's incredible. And then you were 39. You had a toddler. You were a single parent. You had your step parents, two daughters. Did you keep in touch with them? Oh, yes. Um, oh, good. We're still in touch. Yeah. Oh, good. And um, 
I love that because I just take family in from everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't know my sister, you just don't know it. Um, <laughs> so, um, and you were in upstate New York. You went to Belgium for a while. Was that just a brief visit with your mom? Were you there for, I'm just trying to gauge time, I guess. Oh, well, 39 at this point in our story. Yeah, well, at 39, uh, actually, I had lived in Bosnia with um, with my second husband for three years. Oh. He was He's Bosnian, and my first husband was Turkish, is Turkish. So I had actually been living overseas and, and living in and out of the U.S. throughout my 20s and 30s. So at 39, I actually, it was the first time that I moved to Belgium and actually lived there for a period of years. I had only visited and spent, you know, several months at a time there prior to that. This is definitely a couple podcast episodes, but we're just <laughs> like, holy shit, who are you? <laughs> and she's 007. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you're 39, you've ended that, you're ta- you're, you have a toddler, you've kept in touch with your stepkids, which I love, and then you moved to Belgium. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm getting it now. And you're alone again. Yes. A lot of us are really afraid to be alone without realizing that we're afraid to be alone. Like, no, I've got, I've got my whole shit together all my life. I've got all my degrees and look at this pedigree and the whole thing, but we're really afraid to do it alone or to even just have someone as that sounding board that's got our back, you know? Oh my gosh. I mean, it was ground zero in a way that I had never experienced ground zero. Okay. I think, and you know, when you, you know, we have to define alone too. Like I think many people are married and they're still alone. Agreed. So that was part of it was like, I had been alone in that marriage in, in a lot of ways for, for some time. So it wasn't so much to be physically alone. It was more the sense of, reevaluating what I had lived once again and sort of saying, look, uh, I can point the finger as much as I want to two men now and all the men that had preceded them and say they're the problem. And I had friends and family and all kinds of people who would have called him all kinds of names and confirmed for me that he was the bad guy and that it was his fault that the divorce was happening, et cetera. But I realized very quickly that that was not going to get me anywhere. And that wasn't the kind of uh, um, way that I wanted to end the relationship. And I knew there was no, there would be no healing and there would be no forward movement if I stayed stuck in that conversation, which meant I had to turn the focus on myself and say, look, without too much judgment, my love, Belinda, you know, let's, let's sit down and have a real conversation about what you've been living. And, and, and part of that was to understand what I had actually lived in relationship. But part of it was also what I was avoiding by being in relationship. When we talked about earlier, me being really good in relationship, like I was, you know, my first husband actually had uh, twin three-year-olds, um, twin uh, three-year-old sisters when I, when we first got together and long, I mean, this is for another podcast, as you say, but they basically came to live with us. So actually in my mid twenties, it was like being a co-parent with his dad, his stepmom, and these twin three-year-olds. So I was very good in my, you know, as soon as I got out of law school at creating distractions and other ways to 
uh, take care of lots of other people and be involved in lots of other things outside of myself and never really answer those questions again. Of who am I? What do I want? How do I want to live? How do I want to feel? You know, what's my purpose on the planet? It was like, no, I can just fit myself here and fit myself there and I'll take care of this and I'll take care of that. And I had been doing that for, you know, 15 years at that point and it was time to stop. So you moved to Belgium for yeah. three years, and I love, <laughs> you're, you're like, uh, I love some of the stuff that you <laughs> It's so great, because we've all kind of been here, right? You spent three, three years look like this, voraciously reading, ugly and cathartic crying, my favorite, <laughs> hours lying on the couch, staring into space, acquiring a job working for multinational company. Um, oh, you're... Belgian doctor diagnosed you with burnout, group therapy, individual therapy, family dinners, family fights, binge watching the American TV you could find on the internet like Desperate Housewives and Sex in the City. I mean, like, <laughs> three years ever. <laughs> Worst three years ever. <laughs> like, oh my God. I'm like, oh, so it sounds like most people's lives. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. You finally came home. <laughs> Welcome to the party. <laughs> but I mean, oh, I, the two dates via the internet. I've never done that. I'm always excited. I'm like, really? How is that? How did that Obviously, it didn't work for you, but how did that work for you? Um, an awkward attempt at a new relationship that lasted two weeks. Nailed it. Like, <laughs> like touchdown. <laughs> You've arrived. <laughs> there you go. So it was three really, really awful years that a lot of us can very specifically relate to, except we got the TV more easily than you did. There you go. <laughs> the three years that, you know, it was sort of like, um, gosh, it, this is probably too, an ex too much of an extreme thing to say, but it was almost like I put myself in jail. Like I put myself in what felt like jail. I had limited opportun work opportunities because I was, educated in the U.S. and even though I was a Belgian citizen, uh, I remembered saying I want to practice mediation in Belgium. They're like, oh, you're going to have to go back to school for five years to do that and thinking, oh, okay. And eventually that is why I did decide, the main reason why I decided to come back to the U.S. was I couldn't practice my craft there uh, in Belgium. Um, but I did want to go back and just say one really quick thing about, about the, the two-week failed relationship. It was I don't really go into that anywhere in my story, but it's it's kind of fun because it was a pivotal moment for me. It was uh, I was actually met the guy on the day that my divorce was finalized. It was one year after I'd physically separated from my husband, and I thought I was going out with some friends. I hadn't really been looking, but I felt like, oh, I'm ready. You know, one year out, um, the divorce. I got literally got the call that the lawyer, you know, the papers have been filed. Um, and the process of getting divorced was a little complicated because I was living in Belgium. My ex-husband was living in Bosnia. We were getting divorced in the U.S. So it was a bit like kind of crazy. But I go out and I meet this guy and I think, oh, you know, he was um, he like worked for USAID. He's one of these guys who goes into war torn countries and like saves little kids. And I thought, oh, like it's everything, you know, he's totally speaking my language. Uh, and it was. Um, pretty atrocious. And, and why it was atrocious was, uh, he was sort of like on the surface, 
this image of, of what I thought I wanted in a guy that I hadn't experienced in the past, but just underneath, all the same kind of patterns that, that I had lived already were surfacing. And I remember going to, to the group therapy with my Belgian doctor. And, you know, he said to me, Belinda, you'll know something shifted inside of you when you start making different choices. And it was such divine timing because the choice that I had made to be with this guy was it felt so similar, you know, different guy. I talk and I say this in the book, different guy, same experience, because I hadn't shifted anything within myself about who I was attracting, what kind of experience I wanted to have with someone. And also how I felt about myself because he was rather um, aggressive and you could see that it could become an abusive relationship at some point if, if we continued. So it was sort of like back to the drawing board and let's say single for another period of time till I figure out within myself what's got to shift to have a really successful, healthy, interdependent relationship. And you really committed to doing that, to understand yourself and uh, you describe it as walking through the darkness. Yeah. And uh, I know all, any of us who've been through any kind of real major struggle, but especially those of us who have gone through divorce and having to figure ourselves out again, um, it feels very much like that. So you, you did. You, I, love, I love this statement. You said, I rejoiced in the idea that I was able to find my way to love when you embraced all of your failures. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I realized I was human. <laughs> what? <laughs> that I was human and that yeah. like that was the gift in the darkness. And you know, I, I still I still struggle with this at times because even though I had that recognition, I had that realization. I have lived my life for a decade now uh with this kind of mindset, but I can still get trapped in those moments of something's happening in life and it doesn't feel like it should be happening that way. And then I go to judge the situation or judge the person or judge myself. And I have to remind myself and be actively engaged in these practices of, wait a minute, it's all part of this journey. It's all part of the experience. Allow it to happen. And guess what? It's going to be uncomfortable. Nobody wants conflict. Nobody wants difficulty. Nobody wants a pipe bursting in their house, right? <laughs> nobody wants right? Their, their kids to come home with a, an F on a paper. Like nobody wants these things, but they are part of life. And damn it, we have to stop resisting that this shit is just fucking part of life. It's part of life. And once we can do that within ourselves, and within everything that's going on, how we experience it is where we have choice. Whether or not there's going to be a tornado that comes through your yard, whether or not your kid's going to get into college, whether or not till death do us part is going to happen, we can't control these things. But we have choice in how we live them when they happen, how we see them when they happen, how, we, how we're kind with ourselves and others when they happen. That's where there's power. And we're continuing to focus ourselves and in directions where we don't have the power, right? We can't force somebody to love us. We can't force somebody to stay with us, but we can still choose how we're going to be when, when this stuff happens. So. I agree. I think we, I think we're a society. I don't know if it's the U S specifically or just human nature, but we try to control everything. And I always use the example, like I can't control if a guy cuts me off on the freeway. But I can decide that it's, I'm not going to give, relinquish my control to this person that doesn't know me, that I'll never see again for the whole day because now my day's gone to shit. 
Like I just gave that control up. I, I had that control. So I love looking at the areas in our lives where we can control it, not control it in a manipulative or derogatory manner, but like I, I get to experience being cut off and react to it the way that I want to. Exactly. I, I can't control that it happened, but I can control everything else surrounding it. Exactly. And, and the fact that sometimes you can just be really glad you didn't get into a fucking accident. Yes. I mean, like, or somebody didn't take out a gun and shoot you the way this is happening in right. the world these days, right? So I choose to have gratitude in that situation that it wasn't worse and that, I'm, that I know that I don't have to give up. My whole day is now bad. It's just blown to hell because some dude I don't know cut me off on the highway. And I also don't know his story. His wife could be in preterm labor at the hospital. That's it. And I, I don't know. That's I it. I always think, oh, I hope everyone's okay. I hope everyone's okay because you just did a really asshole thing. <laughs> so I that's hope right. everyone's okay because I don't know his story. That's right. But and that's, and that's me. And that's the curiosity again, Jen. Oh, right, right. There was a, I mean, I had that same experience of being in the car and having a reaction. And it was my, then like my daughter was five or six. And she's the one who said, mommy, what if he has his pregnant wife in the back of the car and they're rushing to the hospital? And I thought like this wave of love and gratitude and joy. Like I was like, and we needed my child. I needed my child to remind me of this. Like through her eyes, there was nothing wrong or bad about what he had done through her eyes. It was, we don't understand exactly that point that you're right. making. Right. And he could be just a total jerk doing a jerk move, but I, I'm not invested in that if yeah. I don't allow myself to be. And now you're talking about bigger situations, getting somebody to love you, being divorced, having relationships. I mean, those are way bigger than being cut off on the highway, but it goes down to that smallest base thing all the way up to the bigger things. You're right. I, I never recognized how much curiosity, that's a great word for us to remember that I want to point out. So you arrived with the rest of us, you <laughs> but, and you started to really listen to you, yeah, which I love. And then you do have, we do, all of us have this wealth of experience inside of us that we can draw on. And so your story is completely different from mine, but God, what a wealth of knowledge you have from that. And then you have a wealth of knowledge from your education. Mm-hmm. which is something totally different. And when did it like, when did you have the light bulb moment that like, Oh wait, I could take all of my personal experiences and all of my degrees in education that drive, I could take those and marry them. Ah, interesting word. Wasn't, it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> that was not on purpose, <laughs> but you did. You marry, it was a great amalgam that you brought together and you could create something completely different for people. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? When did the light bulb go on? I mean, I think <clears throat> upon coming back to the U.S. and I moved to Portland, Oregon, even though I grew up in, in upstate New York and spent my 20s in and around New York City, I moved to Portland, Oregon uh, for many, many reasons. But the main one being, you know, raising a, a young child and wanting to develop a business, um, it, I thought, you know, this is going to be, I can be a big fish in a small sea, as opposed to going back to New York City. And so that was part of what got me to this part of the country. Um, But I think it was coming back. uh, I also look at seven year cycles. And so for me, I was uh, actually just turning 42 when I got here. 
Um, so it was the end of another seven-year cycle. Um, so there, it, it felt like at these seven-year cycles, um, I mean, you can look at it through astrology, you can look at it through human development. They're always um, markings of change and transition. If, if we really look carefully at 7, 14, 21, 20. I'm 49 this year. So you go. What? And this is a big one. This is 49 is a big one. Um, and seven it can, by seven. It can be subtle, right? It can be just changes within, like changes of uh, how you experience yourself in your body, changes around your mindset. For me, it was, it was this difference between, um, I think I, was, I stopped trying to prove anything about who I was, even to the depth of like proving why it was right for me to be on the planet. Because if you remember back to the very beginning of my story, I had this question or I had this kind of feeling most of my life, like I was an accident or if my mom was depressed and my dad was depressed, did they really want me and made it about them? But then there was this bigger question of like, why am I here? Like what's, you know, not just like what's my purpose on the planet, but why am I here? And I still hadn't quite resolved that um, up until that point. And I think when I stopped asking that question and said, look, um, to my knowledge, God is not going to come down and have a conversation with me and convince me that there's a reason why I'm here. So stop trying to like have somebody come and tell you why you're here and just accept the fact that the fact that you're alive and you're a human being and you were born and you have been graced in, in millions of ways since you've been on the planet, you are here and, and the world wants you here, right? So once I got to that point, it was like, okay, once again, going back to embracing all of those experiences, not having to prove why I'm here, not having to figure out my purpose anymore. It became more than about following it. And it was really this embracing everything that happened in my life. Then it was like, as you said, I kind of just looked back and said, wow, 42 years of pretty interesting life if I'm the only one who's saying it was interesting but I was like this has been a pretty interesting life and then you know having conversations realizing I had been having these kinds of conversations with with individuals friends family people have come, had come to me for coaching uh, my whole life and then it sort of just all really clicked and said look while I there was a little part of me resisting it and really in part because I had two, two of the most important men in my life my dad who said You'll never want to do anything in the law. You're going to hate it. So I had that in the back of my mind most of my adult life. And then my second husband saying, oh, you're not going to want to work with divorcing people and unhappy people. That's so miserable, right? And like having them in the back of my mind and saying, you know what? Thank you for your, you know, your opinions. I'm very clear that this is the work that I'm meant to do. And it's been, been doing it ever since. So I'm going to make a... Um comparison that's pretty maybe odd and definitely not fun but when you describe more and more clients coming to you not necessarily wanting to divorce or separate this reminds me of when someone is suicidal it isn't that they want to die it's that they want their pain to end yeah and when I read this sentence from you, you said they desire relief from the struggle or discomfort by trying to understand and, and understanding. They want to get out of the situation that they're in. It doesn't mean suicide. It doesn't mean divorce. It doesn't mean, it means you feel so stuck in the moment that you don't know. There doesn't seem to be any other choice. Right. 
which is suicide. I mean, that's how people feel with suicide. And you're explaining, which is so, so true and so crazy that those two would be related like that. You, you don't necessarily not love the person or not want to be married or not want it to work out or not want to put in the work, but you want the pain and the discomfort you're feeling to end. And that's the only way out that you think you have. That's right. Okay. Cause I was like, wow, that's, that's not a good analogy, (laughs) but it actually is a pretty good, it's, it's exactly the same. And so what I love that you do is like, well, maybe separation or divorce or not being in a box, staying together, but not being in a box, living in two separate houses or however that works. (laughs) Well, maybe there are just other options. There's divorce or separation. They're staying together. But within those three choices, there's so many choices. Yeah. And you, you help to show that maybe one of those is right. Divorce, separation, staying together, but it can look so much different. If you can, you can get through it and not be in the pain that you're in. And there's not just one way out. There's all these other infinite options and that's what you're giving people yes yes and and you know when i start to work with people i always say for a 90-day period you're you're if you want to work with me you're not going to make a decision you there's no decision making in that 90-day period because one of the things you were referencing earlier about having experience and having education and all of this and finding a way to bring that to the table for any of us to do the work we're going to do in the world. Um, there's a quote that I love. Um, Tumor is the last name of the woman. She says, you know, we don't learn from our experiences. We learn from untying the ropes. Um, we learn from reflection. I have a couple of quotes in the book that talk about it's not the actual experience. It's reflecting on the experience. And many of us just sort of look at this was bad. This happened. He hit me. She cheated on me. They kind of just do that. And then they decide that's why I'm going to leave, right? As opposed to wait a minute, like reflection means thinking about it, means digging underneath, means getting curious. Uh, Esther Perel right now is one of the, you know, most outspoken advocates that couples can come back from infidelity, because because people don't naturally want to hurt each other. What they want is significance and belonging. People want connection. We're just often misguided using strategies that think are going to get us that, um, that aren't. And then we make these choices that on the surface look like you're a bad person. You're not an ethical person. If you really loved me, you wouldn't behave this way. When in fact, what she's revealing is that's not the case at all. That's two completely separate things. You can really love someone and do some pretty stupid, shitty things that will hurt them. But we have to start under, we've got to start taking some time. We've got to start taking a pause. And that's the 90 day, you know, initial part of working with me is this pause to really get underneath and understand and be willing to listen to each other to understand where did, where did these patterns begin? Because they didn't begin in the marriage. If there's something that people are struggling with in a marriage, there were patterns that were grooved well before the couple got together. It's just in that first year or so, we're in such a freaking hormonal bliss that we think the people changed. They didn't change. We just had a lot of 
physiology on our side so that we couple from a biological perspective. You know, that's what science tells us. Like, I like you. I like the way you look. I like the way you smell, right? Smell has a lot to do with why we couple. Then my hormones are raging and I'm just like, I want to have sex with you all the time and I want to do all, you know, and then all of a sudden we move from that stage, which is actually a documented, scientifically documented stage of relationship into another stage of relationship that's not as sexy. It's more, who are you and who am I and what do we want and how are we going to plan and how are we going to, you know, be good with each other when we're struggling and fighting and feeling scared and all this kind of stuff. And most couples don't do that stage very well because they're still hanging on to that first year, that feelings of bliss when everything was so easy, thinking that's the way relationships are supposed to be. Well, those, that is fun. <laughs> it is super fun. <laughs> Here's, but here's what I want to tell you, like, and I know we, 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 this has been a long call. We can, we can experience that again and again in our relationship. I know. That's right. That's the beyond because, because we may not have those initial hormones and, and that, that, um, our physiology helping us out, but how, again, we think about the relationship, how we show up in the relationship, how we are curious, how we deepen in our listening, how we deepen in our intimacy can actually create that kind of falling in love over and over again. And I think the successful relationships out there understand this. And it's not a secret, but I don't think enough people know about it. And that's why we think, let me get divorced, let me get out of this, and let me go find brand new shiny penny that's going to make me feel that way again. Exactly. And it's not that I always call it when the bills are due, like everything's great in the relationship until the bills are due. You know? <laughs> right. There's a point in your relationship where the bills start to get due and everything falls to hell at that point. Cause it's not about that early thing, but you can, you can keep having it over and over again and falling in love over and over again and have conflict in the relationship sometimes also. Yes. Uh, and you will have conflict in the relationship. Like that's, that is part of what, what is um, an inevitable part of relationship that if we start looking at it as we welcome it, as much as we welcome the joy and the falling in love again, that will transform our relationships. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.